So with that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and I'm going to tell you a story, and I want, uh, if you're trying to follow along, we start in Genesis, and we're going to race through all of the Old Testament in about 10 minutes, okay? So if you kind of wondered what the Old Testament's about, I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version right now, okay? In the beginning, right? In the beginning, God makes the whole world, and he makes everything in it, and he makes everything good, and he makes human beings, and he says they're very good. And he gives us a, u- a unique distinction that's different from every other thing that he created that had life. And he said that, that man and woman were made in the image of God. They were image bearers of God. And what that means is that human beings communicate something about God to each other and the rest of the world. So there's the idea of that as an image bearer, we're a representation of God on the earth. That we have a spirit essentially his spirit and his life, and we're communicating something. But not only is there representation involved, there's an aspect of responsibility. He gave human beings uh, dominion over the earth, and he said, go multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and, and take all this, this natural world and, and make families and make villages and make cities and, and cultivate it and make this beautiful thing. And then also that with the idea of a being an image bearer, Not only was it involving representation, not only was it involving responsibility, but it was involving relationship. God entered into a relationship with human beings. He walked with human beings in the garden. He created human beings to be relational as he is relational. That was the design that God had. Everything was perfect. Everything was awesome. Everything was good. It was very good. And we see immediately into our story that humans being rebel against God. God had defined good and evil. He said, everything in this garden is good, but don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's bad. Don't do that. And we see that quickly human beings believe the lie from the enemy. They define good and evil on their own. They rebel. Rebellion's interesting. Rebellion at the heart of all rebellion is a belief, a belief that something is better, right? And sometimes rebellion is in some ways good, and sometimes it's not as good, but at the core of all rebellion is a belief. And so they believed the enemy, they believed the lie, and they took of the tree and they ate it. And they defined good and evil on their own terms. And we see ultimately, instantly, the result is shame. They hide from one another. They hide from God, which we have been doing ever since. And they quickly um, see the effects. The world is cursed, The ground is cursed, humans are cursed in some ways, death enters in the world, pain, suffering, injustice immediately begins to run rampant. If you're reading through Genesis, like we have a chapter, the very next chapter we see marriage breakdown, or we see, well, we see murder, we see marriage breakdown, we see, I mean, it just spins out of control rapidly. Human beings are exiled from God's presence, that relationship is broken, they're still image bearers, but it's distorted, right? So we see that God promises as he's kind of kicking them out of the garden, that one day I'm going to send a savior, one day I'm going to send a heel, uh, a snake crusher, right? He's going to crush the head of the snake, but he's going to be wounded on his heel, and it's going to come from this woman, it's going to come from the seed of woman, which is like very interesting, especially being written thousands of years ago, and God promises, and then we see God pursuing. Human beings spin out of control, there's the flood, but after that he finds a man named Abraham, he becomes Abraham, his name's Abram when God finds him, and he pursues this man and he promises to him that he is going to make 
the descendants of his, this great people that will be a blessing to the whole world. We see God again establishing a new relationship with humans. This guy was going to image God again. He was going to restore that relationship again. And he promised an 80-year-old man with no kids that his offspring were going to become a great nation that would be a blessing to the whole world. And it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This moment of belief brought righteousness on him. He was imputed righteousness. We see the beginning of, of how God would make human beings right with himself. And he believed, and it, of course, this man had a son and who became a people, who became a nation, who was great. And it started filling the, fulfilling the promise that God had, but they end up in captivity in Egypt for 400 years. So the story seems to kind of take a weird turn. But God brings them out through miraculous things and he returns in a sense and that he establishes a way for human, this, this group of people to image him to the rest of the world. How can this, world, this, this people live in a way that communicates to the rest of the world about God? How can they image him? And he enters into a relationship with them, but they needed to know how, in a sense, to do that. And so he gives them his law. They restore Access in some ways that the temple kind of comes back. They build a temple so God would dwell physically on a space on earth. And then he gives them their law so they know how to image him, how they can be acceptable for God. There's sacrifice involved. It's this whole new way of doing life. And it's not that they get to please God by doing it, but in doing this, it communicates something to the rest of the world about God. God was defining good and evil again. And he was giving human beings, he was inviting them the opportunity to trust him on his definition of good. And some of it, I'll be honest, you read through the law, somebody's like, this is weird, man. There's some weird stuff in here. It doesn't make any sense. Like, why can you eat this and not eat this? Like, why does this ceremony do this? Like, but there's an area of like, this is communicating something bigger than just this ceremony. Like, there's something about this is communicating God. And so there was this opportunity to trust God. And so he said, if you obey me, and if you obey this, these laws and these ceremonies, then my presence, my physical presence, the God of the universe who is dwelling on the earth in the Holy of Holies, he goes, my presence will remain. But if you do not obey, then my presence will leave. And you know what happens, maybe. Human beings, like we're notorious for, rebelled against God again. The Israelites rebelled against God the, his presence left. They began to define good and evil on their own terms. And rather than being a blessing to the world, they became a curse. And they were, their society and culture was filled with violence and injustice and brokenness and suffering and pain. And God's physical, his presence leaves the temple and God allows this promised people, the nation that they had been that waiting for their land forever to be taken captive. And they were hauled out of their land to Babylon and they were destroyed. So it seems like the story kind of goes sideways quick. And during their time in Babylon, and then eventually Babylon was conquered by Persia, and it was during Persia's time that they were allowed to go back to their, their land in Jerusalem, and they went back to this space, and they rebuilt the temple, and they, but it wasn't nothing like Solomon's temple. And they rebuilt their walls, but it was nothing like its former glory. They were free, but they weren't. They were still under ro- the rule of the Persians, which was eventually conquered by the Greeks, which was eventually conquered by Rome. And it was during this time as they came back and started rebuilding their culture and rebuilding their society and redoing their traditions and starting over again that they started to long for a savior. 
Where's this Messiah that we were promised? Where is the Messiah that said was going to come and free us and rule us? And they determined very quickly that the reason we're in captivity, the reason why we were taken over was because we disobeyed and rebelled against God. And we don't want that to happen again. So they said, we need to obey God. But how are we to obey him? We, we don't understand all that. Like, so when it says, keep the Sabbath holy, what does that mean? What constitutes work? Is it, if I walk 100 steps, is it not work but 200 steps, is that work? If I'm carrying this Bible, is that carrying a burden? Or if I carry a box, right? Or what does it look like to honor my father and mother? Like, at what point does, what's the line right there? What constitutes idol worship? What constitutes an image? It's like all of these elements right, that they have in their, their culture, they're like, we need to define what every commandment means because we want to obey perfectly because they believed if they could get this law thing down perfectly, the Messiah would come and they would be free. And so they, they and how they understood the Messiah was that he was going to be a son of David, right, that they believed in promise. He'd be like the prophet of Moses, would have power. And so the Messiah would come and he'd be this powerful, uh, obviously successful political leader, a military king that was going to physically wipe out Rome, like in war, establish his throne in Jerusalem, and physically reign for all of eternity. Like that was their expectation. Like he was going to liberate us like Politically, as a nation. And so they began to figure out what does it look like to obey God. And in a way, although God had given them his law, they're defining good and evil on their own. And so they start forming these laws on laws. They start forming traditions for the laws. They, they go, well, this law means uh, you shouldn't bear a burden, and that constitutes work on the Sabbath. But what's a burden? So they make a law on that. And then there, you shouldn't walk a certain amount of distance. So what does that look like? And so they start making laws on top of laws, and then they made some more laws. And so Jewish religion morphed into something very, very different. It became a, a religion of laws and upon different laws and expectations for these laws, and it became thousands and thousands and different leaders and different rabbis raised up, and they said, no, we think it's this way. And so they go, well, we, we, believe, we agree with this rabbi, and another rabbi's like, no, this is what work looks like, and so I'm going to stick with this rabbi. And so different um, groups rose up, and they took all of these laws eventually, and they formulated, it's like commentaries upon commentaries upon commentaries of the law, just so they could get it right. They formed the Mishnah years later, and that's how they understood and kind of kept track of all of these. And so it makes sense, though, that because there was this aspect of this political leader coming on the scene and freeing them, and that, but yet in order for that to happen, they had to follow the religion just right. The religious leaders and the rabbis became the political leaders of the culture. They became the ones determining this is right and this is wrong. And their expectation was, is when the Messiah came, they would rule with the Messiah. And so the religious leaders became the political leaders in their culture. That was like Rome gave them autonomy somewhat. They still had to pay taxes. Rome was still in charge. But they kind of could run their own culture. And so they, the religious leaders, formed this ruling body 
called the Sanhedrin. It consisted of seven uh, leaders. They were called either Pharisees or Sadducees. The Pharisees were the conservative party. The Sadducees were the liberal ones. It's been going for thousands of years. It ain't going to get any better. Okay, so it was happening there, and they didn't like each other. In fact, total side note, Paul on trial used their aggression against each other to get out of being convicted. Like, he's like, I'm a Pharisee. I believe in the resurrection. That's why I'm on trial. And the Sadducees like, how dare you? You know, like, total sidebar. But um, anyway, liberals and conservatives still existed. So here you have this scene where there's this highly political, highly religious culture being led by religious people with the hope and the longing and the desire that if they just could get this right, everything would be okay. That was the climate. And here's the hard part, is that no one can get it right. Nobody can live it perfectly. And so in the midst of all this, Rome's kept cracking down harder and harder on them. Taxes were going up. Their frustration against, against Rome began to grow. Their frustration was high on why has the Messiah not come and freed us? And then Jesus is born. And he's born in a very different way. Only a few of them even know, in a sense, like, the Magi came and kind of explained what was going on, and the leaders were like, yeah, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, but like nobody really knew. The shepherds knew, right? So this, this king they've been waiting for comes, and he's born in a barn, he's laid in a feeding trough, his announcement is by like poor shepherds. He's a descendant of David, he is the promised son they've been waiting for, but he was born to this really poor couple, he worked as a laborer his whole life, he had no in a sense, riches or, or success. He was a carpenter by trade. He was, lived a very insignificant life. There was an ordination of this great king, but it was a baptism in the wilderness by a guy that everybody thought was nuts. He wore camel hair and he ate bugs, and it was just like, what's going on, right? Like, he's, he's hitting all of the markers of a great king, but it's nothing like anybody expected. He chose a circle of friends to be the future leaders of his kingdom, but they were fishermen, and they were zealots, and they were women, and they were tax collectors. Like, nobody wanted those. Like, why would you have those as your leaders? None of the things he was doing made sense. He went to go seek citizens of this new kingdom, but the people he was pursuing were poor, and the outcast, and the lepers, and the and the people, like in the tax collectors, and the party, like the people that society had completely written off, like those were the people he was saying, come, be a part of my new kingdom. None of it made sense. None of it made sense. His mission begins, but it's different than what everybody expected. And he's going around telling everybody about the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. There's the kingdom, the kingdom. In fact, the kingdom is mentioned over 50 times in the book of Matthew. But every chance he had to seize power, to take control, he rejected it. Why is he doing this? Why is he doing this? His kingdom was very different. What kingdom is he talking about? How can this be the Messiah? He's not what we remember hearing about. He's not the Jesus or the king that we had been told growing up. What's interesting about Jesus talking about his own kingdom in John 18, which we'll talk about in the future. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. 
the kingdom of God was coming. And, and we see that one day Jesus will rule and reign, but he was bringing this, this spiritual kingdom on the scene that was coming about in physical ways, right? Like Jesus was healing the sick and healing the blind and touching lepers. He was undoing the results of sin. He was letting the kingdom of God, even just be this little moment, be exposed and kind of saying, this is what the future holds. It's healing. There's, there's wholeness. There's life. There's flourishing. He was inviting weak and poor and outcasts to be, to be part of his people, to have a seat at the table. The kingdom of heaven would be like that, where the first would be last and the last would be first. Like, we'd all be invited in. We wouldn't have to earn a higher level. We wouldn't have to go to different lengths. We were invited in to this kingdom. He was giving people a taste. He was raising the dead. He was undoing the effects of sin and decay and death. He was giving them a taste, a preview of coming attractions. This was not the Messiah they were looking for. And he was going to cost them everything. And so they determined that he must die. Which leads us to our text today, John chapter 12, verse 9, and I'll read through verse 19. It says, when the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, there is in Bethany, and he was the one that just was anointed by Mary, okay, the crowd started gathering They came, not on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing on Jesus. And so Jesus is still in Bethany, okay, from last week. And people start gathering because they heard about this guy that was dead for four days and is raised from the dead. And they're wanting to see him. They're wanting to hear, could this be? This is radical. This is different than everything that we had learned about the Messiah, but it's awesome. And so we see that momentum in a lot of ways is peaking, so much so that the leaders determined that we need to kill Lazarus because he is jacking up our plans. Many are going after Jesus. Many are going away and believing in Jesus. And I love that line. Many were going away and believing in Jesus. That is my heart. That is my heart for us. Many of us are coming from different backgrounds. Many of us are coming from different perspectives. Many of us are coming from different churches even. And at the end of the day, we can divide and disagree about a lot of things theologically. But my hope and my prayer is that we can believe more in Jesus together. That our, what brings us together is Jesus. And my hope is that you might be coming from a different place, and that's totally fine. But if there's anything, if there's anything that I hope is that you would go after Jesus, that you'd believe on Jesus more. For those that know him, trust him more. For those of you who have not trusted him yet, trust him. Believe on Jesus. That is really what we want to see, that we're enjoying him more. We're enjoying the peace and grace and love that he gives every day. Verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. And he said, uh, as is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, 
Then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole the world has gone after him. And so that's what John says about the triumphal entry, which is crazy because all the other gospels cover quite a bit more of it. It says the next day. I love that little bit of detail. Jesus is still smelling from the perfume that Mary had poured all over him. Like, I just, like, I put myself, as he's, he's coming in, he tells his disciples to go get these colts from this village, and this guy's like, all right, you can have my horses and my colt, and he puts Jesus on it, and as he's coming, he does this, you can smell the, you can smell the perfume, you have people running out, it's dusty, there's excitement, like, just imagine this scene that's, that's unfolding. And he starts walking, or he starts letting this, this animal walk him, and um, and he's sitting on it, and people start pouring, putting their jackets down. They start putting palm branches down. They're screaming. They're excited. Zach, uh, Zechariah 9, 9 is this passage here in, in twelve fifteen. Fear not, daughter of Zion. It's a prophecy that John put in here to say that he's fulfilling this prophecy about the Messiah coming one day. So John puts that in there to like let anybody know, hey, this was talked about while they're in captivity. It's being fulfilled. What's interesting is the king is riding in on his steed, right? Like we have this picture of the king coming in, his triumphal entry. He's coming in, like kings would come into the city after they conquered it or after war, and they would they'd be coming into this space, and he's coming in, and, and the people are rejoicing. <clears throat> and Luke gives us a little kind of snippet that I find fascinating in Luke 19, 14. It tells us that Jesus begins to weep over Jerusalem. We see him weep again, two times. He weeps right before he raises Lazarus from the dead, and he's weeping here. And his, and his sadness is, is this idea that he sees the outcome of what's going to happen with Jerusalem. Jerusalem has about 35 years before it's completely wiped out. Titus comes in in 70 AD and destroys the city, tears the temple down literally to its foundation, wipes them out completely. And it says that Jesus was weeping. What was crazy is that they were expecting the Messiah to come for Rome, conquer Rome, and Jesus was weeping because he knew that Rome was going to conquer Jerusalem. And he's, and he's saying, if you just would have listened to me, if you just would have heard what I'm saying, if you just would have believed on me, he's going in in his triumphal entry to die, and he knows it, and they think he's coming in to bring victory and free them. And so he rolls in, and they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the son of David, blessed is the king. The word Hosanna means to save us, Lord. And it's a direct, also kind of fulfillment of the prophecy in Psalm 118, 25, where it says, save us, we pray, O Lord, Lord, we pray, give us success, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so they, the crowd, is recognizing that Jesus is the promised Messiah. They are proclaiming messianic psalms to him. Like, they are absolutely nailing it. They're getting it right. He is the Messiah. He is coming to conquer and to save. But it's very different. 
It's very different than what they expected. He is the promised son, and he is coming to save them. But it's, it's not what they imagined. The first thing that Jesus does, John doesn't talk about it, but every other gospel mentions it. The first thing that Jesus does, he comes into town, right? People are screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna. And what is the first thing he does? He walks into the temple and just runs everybody out. Overchains, money changers, starts whipping people, like, starts telling everybody, this is, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of thieves. He goes after the Pharisees, and he says, you guys have been poor stewards of what God left for you. Like, the Messiah isn't going after the Romans, he's going after the Jewish leaders. This isn't right. Who is this guy? He clears out the temple. Their entire understanding of God the Messiah, essentially Jesus, was off. It was off. They were wrong. None of this is what they expected from the Jewish Messiah. The true Messiah, Jesus, was different than what they were told, what they learned about, what they understood. And they were wrong. And I think that it's interesting. It was, he was contrary to their plans. Even the disciples didn't get it. I like how John puts it in there. Like, they were caught up in the moment too. They're coming through like, this is it. Finally, like, you know, I'm sure like the zealot was like, yeah, like this is what I've been waiting for. I'm ready. You know, like Thomas even said, let's go to Jerusalem. Let's die with him. Like they were preparing for battle in their brains. And it says that it wasn't until Jesus was glorified, which means he died, resurrected, and then eventually ascended back to heaven, that they were like, oh, yeah, that's right. This wasn't what he was talking. Like that was that verse. And that, John enters all that in after the fact, realizing like, oh, yeah, that wasn't what we were expecting. Even his own disciples didn't get it. I wanted to tell, of, tell all of that because the level of disappointment was tangible. Jesus did not fit into their paradigm. He did not fit what they were taught from rabbinical school all the way up. He did not fit into their expectations. He was nothing like they were expecting. He was not the Messiah they were looking for. He was so much better. And the reason why I find that important is that I have had many, many conversations with many people in this room who have experienced disappointment with the Messiah as well. That there has been ideas of who Jesus is and what his expectations are for you that you have come to learn that you're finding out aren't the same as what we see from the Jesus of the Bible. And I'm, I'm talking about like, I realized that as I grew up, my understanding of how God was often was different as well. And maybe you can relate with a couple of things I'm about to say. I grew up in, a, in at least my understanding of God was that <clears throat> I had to make myself worthy or make myself good enough to really be acceptable to God. I, I came from an understanding that if I didn't live a certain way, if I didn't function a certain way, then God was mad at me, that God was disappointed at me, that God was, um, it just, it, it wasn't, it just, it was kind of like, ugh, he just puts up with me. And what's crazy is that mindset bled into 
the church culture I grew up in. And so what would happen is that if God, of course, is disappointed at you, then when I observe you not living up to the standard I think you should live, then I too am going to be disappointed in you. You too aren't acceptable to me. And so I need to punish you or you need to receive, be pushed, put out or whatever the case is and so that you can learn to get back right because we can only please God, we can only be acceptable to God if we're good enough. Here's the crazy thing. I believed and I knew I was saved by grace. Saved, I'd go to heaven when I die, but, but I was only acceptable and loved by God if I earned it. Would have never said that. And that was never taught, but that's how we functioned. And the idea was if you're not doing right, then you just need to work harder. Was always the thing. Oh, you're struggling? Well, then you need to read more, pray more, go to church more, you need to serve more, you need to give more. If, you do, if you're not doing those things, now I'm not saying those are bad. Like sometimes we do. Like if I'm not in the word, then man, I, I'm probably not being very nourished, right? But the mindset was always, if I'm struggling, if I'm not doing enough, then God must be disappointed, and therefore I must do more work for God to be pleased with me. And it changed how I interacted with God because I would really only go to him when I was feeling like I was bringing my A game. And when I didn't, I was always beating myself. And so it created, and I've talked about this a lot, but I think it's so important. It created this mindset of complete self-examination. I was always just navel-gazing in a lot of ways, for lack of a better term. Like, am I doing good enough? Am I doing enough here? Am I reading enough? Then, I'm, then something bad happens. Like, maybe, I, maybe God's punishing. Maybe God's mad at me. Like, my eyes were on myself the whole time. The whole time. Jesus was my Savior but he was also scary. I had to clean myself up. I had to get dialed in. Colossians 2.13, as I was praying last night, stood out, and I want to read it to you because I think it's so powerful, especially when we talk about triumphal entry. It says, And you, that's us, who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, canceling the debt, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This, this demands, this legal set of demands, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Jesus has forgiven us all, not just yesterday's, but all our trespasses. Trespass is like rebellion, right? Like there's a sin. The word sin means to miss the mark, right? We're aiming, we're trying our best. I just can't hit the bullseye every time. That's sin. That's also like Jesus died for that, right? Our best efforts can't hit the target. The word trespass is exactly how it sounds. Like there's the line and you're like, right? Rebellion. So he died for the sin, my best effort's still failing, but he also died for my rebellion. And we have complete forgiveness and the track record, the demands with its legal things. God is a just God. He said, you have to obey all of this <clears throat> to be acceptable to me. He said that. You've got to be perfect. And we can't do it. So Jesus came and he lived up to that perfect standard. He did all the legal requirements and he nailed it to the cross. There's nothing more that needs to be done. And he declares from the cross, it is finished, finished, done, 
paid in full. And so now, because of Jesus and Jesus alone, when I trust his invitation, when I trust what he has given me, I experience and I receive forgiveness of all my sins, all my rebellion, all my trespass, but I also receive his righteousness. I believe, as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness, I too then get Jesus' track record of righteousness imputed to me. So when the Father looks at me, he sees his son's perfection. He sees his son's work. Does that mean I don't sin anymore? No, I still struggle but I'm acceptable to God because of Jesus and alone. And so when I struggle, when I fail, when I rebel again, I'm able to walk in and say, thank you, Jesus, for what you have done. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your righteousness. Thank you that you lived up to the standard I'm unable to. Thank you that you nailed the legal demands to the cross. And in that space, I'm able to receive mercy, as it says in Hebrews, and grace, Mercy is not getting what I deserve. That's what the word mercy basically means. You deserve something, you don't get it. And grace, grace is getting something you don't deserve, like love or whatever, right? And so Hebrews says that I can come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. And so Jesus is the worthy one who makes you worthy. He's the one that brings forgiveness. And the Jesus I'm talking about may not be the one that you were expecting, but he is the one you need. He's better than maybe what you've been told. I promise you that. And so amongst all of the areas where we may not understand or not be on the same page, let me plead with you, look to Jesus. Because he is the Savior. He is the, one that, the only one that brings triumph, essentially, in our life. So with that, let's close out with some, some worship, some music. Let's respond to that. We have communion available. And when we take communion, we, we, we bring it up here on purpose so that you can come if you want. You don't have to. But what it is, is when we take the bread and we take the juice, the bread is, Jesus said, it's his body broken for us, right? It, it represents his body that was broken and the juice represents his blood that was shed. And ultimately, what we're doing it. He says, do this in remembrance of me. We're remembering his body was broken for me. His blood was shed for me. It's only, it's everything I've been talking about this morning. We're remembering that. We're celebrating that. And so come and celebrate and remember. And I would say this, if you have never trusted Jesus, you can do that. Like I'm not one to Make a, I'm not going to raise your hand, but I'm just like, like let this, it's simple as this. It's simply a, my dad, my dad was crazy, okay? Strung out, drugged out, ends up in a hotel room in California, and he opens up the drawer, and guess what's in there? Gideon Bible, okay? Drug addict, whole deal. Opens it up, there's one of these, at his wit's end. And he reads Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and 29. It says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Like, and all he says, yes, Lord. It was radically changed. So there's not a ceremony. It's just simply saying, yes, Lord. I trust you. I accept the invitation you're offering. And I promise you that the Holy Spirit will come and live inside you and he'll change you. You'll never be the same. Let's pray.